Welcome back to another episode of MJ's Progress, Not Perfection. And welcoming back to the show again is the host of the show, The Sobriety Playbook, Michelle. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me again. I can't believe it's almost been a year since the last time we had an opportunity to speak. So I'm so happy to connect with you tonight. It's literally been almost a year. Like, I think it was last October-ish when... Yes. So, yeah, we're cutting almost exactly a year, you know. That's crazy to think because you have your own show and we didn't talk a lot about your show last time because it was more of a backstory and we have a lot new, a lot of new guests that have been on the show or a lot of new people that have started following since. So mm-hmm. we'll um we'll give a little backstory again, but you know, the biggest thing I want to talk about is your show. All right. Because your show is when? Every Saturday? Is it every Saturday? So I read... I kind of like redid my schedule. So now it's on every Monday and Wednesday at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. And if my work schedule works with me, then I also upload on Saturday nights, too. So you're doing you're doing a lot. Yeah, yeah, I sure have. I've been doing a lot. Um, and then I've also started to upload to TikTok. And I've also been putting my video out on Instagram. So it's a lot more work than I was doing before. But um, but it's working out well. Yeah, you get a lot more of the pop off of real off Instagram, just putting the best of segment, you know what I mean? Like under 90 yeah. seconds on Instagram. And yeah. it drives a lot of traffic sometimes if you can get the views. But yeah, between TikTok, because I'm on TikTok also. I, I oh, love perfect. Yeah, so I'll make sure to tag your new page into the into the um bio. You know, I'll have all your upload all your links in there too. But I love the TikToks are great because people just mindlessly watch videos all day. So why not put <laughs> put the content in front of their face? Right. Yeah. So you're doing, wow, two shows a week. You weren't doing that many before, were you? No, I really wasn't. You know, I I didn't really start dedicating a lot of time and energy into my show until like the middle of this year. You know, my my life had been pretty... I was still trying to clean up the wreckage of my past. You know, I have three years sober now. Uh, so in my second year of sobriety, like my life was still pretty like upside down um, in a lot of aspects. And so I, I wanted to put out content, but I was still doing like so much personal development that I did it when I felt called. Um, but I was really focusing on like self-care and everything for like the first three years. And then this year is whenever I've kind of like been able to find like a little bit more of a balance in my life. So I started to create more content. And then how does your show go for people that don't, you know, follow your show yet? If they go to like, when they come to my show, they know they're getting really raw stories. Okay. Um, so when they come to your okay. show, like, cause they're twice a week, you, you know, it's hard to get lightning in a bottle that many times in a row. So what are your shows? Like, how do they look if I was to watch it? Yeah, so my shows, you know, um, I help people to integrate sobriety and spirituality and then, like, merge into personal, like, self-development. Because, like, for me, you know, like, getting sober, like, getting off of all the mind-altering substances, like, that was super important for me. But to me, it was like, okay, well, once the drugs and alcohol are gone, like, what next? As I sip on a a monster. You're talking about mind-altering drugs. I'm sipping on a monster. (laughs) Mind-altering. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, progress, not perfection, right? That's what they tell me. (laughs) Yeah, so, yeah. So, for my channel, you know, it's like, once you, like, you take away the drugs and the alcohol, 
we're left with all of these other behaviors that we need to look at. So I help people to develop awareness around like their behaviors, their actions, to create mindfulness, to look at um, the reasons why they make decisions on doing things, how to set intentions, um, how to focus on developing goals and taking the action steps necessary to achieve the things that you want to achieve in your sobriety. So for me, you know, I have several different series, book series on my, my channel. Uh, one of them is called like Blessed and Unstoppable. And it's based off this book that's by one of my teachers named Billy Alls Brooks. He's a motivational speaker that's on Motiversity. And so I just help people to look at it, what it is that they want to achieve in their life, um, how to have a blueprint for success. Um, then I also do some series on the big book, the readings. I have like how it works on there. So if people want to read how it works or if they want to read something specific in the big book, it's already recorded and they can just press play. Like, for example, if they're in their vehicle and they just want to listen to it like before they get to work so they could get centered and focused. I have things like that too. So Daily um, Reflections is a good book for that too, I feel yes, like. Yes, yes, yes. I just finished doing the Daily Reflections recording uh, last night. And so I have that series on there too. So it's like the Daily Reflections, the big book. I have Blessed and Unstoppable. And I have some other books too. Like one thing that I've really realized in sobriety is like um, I've become so much more open-minded about learning you know, because I was in addiction from the time I was 14 years old until I was 39. So when I became sober at 39 years old, I just realized, like, I felt like a teenager. I had never really um, developed myself. I never really had any curiosity about becoming somebody who I thought that I could be become because I just always was taking the easy way out. So I started to read a ton of books when and I got sober. 42. That, that, that puts you at 42. If I'm not, you look, opiates keep us young is the like joke. Is there so many people that have been on here that were like op heavy opiate users that, yeah. you know, you find out they're, how old they're like, what? There's no yeah, way yeah. you did drugs for that long and you're, and you're in your 40s. Yeah. So, it's, and it's for those who don't know, like you were heavy into heroin. That was your biggest, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Heroin was my drug of choice. I mean, I, it was the most intense drug addiction that I had for like that time span of like 25 years, like for seven years, I was just snorting it. And then after seven years, it stopped working. Then I started shooting up. And, um, is the lie the, like lie you told yourself was like, it's if I'm just like seven years of just snorting, that's somebody lying to themselves for seven years. Yeah. Yeah. Were you working during that seven years? Um, very little. I was manipulating my job into convincing them that I needed to be on like short-term disability. So they would pay me to be off work. So I would come in like maybe a couple of times a year or something like that, uh, just to kind of like check in. And then I'd get like my doctors to sign notes and sign necessary paperwork so that I would be off work. But yeah, the last 10 years of my addiction, I were rarely ever worked because I was just so messed up in the head. It's crazy. I mean, what were you doing to like, let's just say like, it's really hard to mm -hmm. be on drugs. So how did you sustain a lifestyle, a lifestyle of drugs every day? If like you yeah. were, 
Yeah, so that's a good question. So the thing is, like, the company that I was working for at the time, um, I was on short-term disability, which meant that I was getting paid 75 to 80% of my income to be off work. So I was still getting money. Okay. I was definitely still getting money. But on top of all that, like, I was selling drugs. Um, I was stealing all the time. And then things that I would steal, I would sell. Um, yeah. So, I mean, like, it, it was just, like, a really dishonest, like, type of way that I, of living that I was in. And, and it was just, like, super shady. I mean, because to go on for that long, you have to have had to have felt functional for a while. I did feel functional for a while. You know, I felt pretty functional through the time that I was doing heroin. Um, but whenever I started doing methamphetamines, like I smoked that for the first time. That's when. The, I don't think we got into the methy days. I, I don't think we did get into the methy <laughs> days because the methy days, like I can skip over that really quick. You know why? Is because the methy days lasted for like three months. Um, the long but, weekend. But it, <laughs> with all the shadow people, you know. Oh my gosh, it, just the the trips like during that time were so insane. Like I went from being like probably like 300 pounds or something like that to being like 130 pounds within a month or something. Um that's had, progressive. Yeah, it was it was absolutely insane. Like at the end of the first month of doing meth, like my skin was like gray. My face was like so gaunt. Um, people thought that I was dying and I pretty much was, you know, I, I went from being on short-term disability, getting paid from this company to losing that income, uh, to not knowing how I was going to make it. So I sold the keys to my apartment to a drug dealer. I sold the keys to my vehicle to a drug dealer so that he could use my car to run drugs and do all this stuff. So I no longer like officially had a place to stay. And I was living on a trap house floor with bed bugs on the floor and rigs on the floor and blood and like women getting raped and like all kinds of violent behavior happening in that house. And on top of all that, it's like I'm on meth and I'm super paranoid and I'm stealing things from people and selling drugs and getting guns pulled out on me and like just living all of a sudden, just like living hell on earth, just thinking about it right now. Like I can see the images of the things that have happened to me in the past. And it's just like, I can't believe that I'm still alive, man. Yeah. I mean, you went from functioning as a heroin addict mm -hmm. to it all unraveling because <clears throat> you couldn't, I, I feel like it's harder to manipulate people when you're high on meth. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's like when you're when I was high on meth, it's like it was written all over my face. It's like I did not even have I could not control my facial expressions. Like I had like this horrible acne and pics like scars like all over my arms and my body and stuff. And I was shaking and I was just kind of like this shell of a person that was just scary to look at. You know? So is that what got you into sobriety at 39 or did you get off that and stick with the heroin again for a while? So, um, I went to rehab, 
I, I don't even know what time that, like how many times I had been to rehab at that point when I was trying to get off meth. But I went to California and uh, so I was in Texas. I flew to California. The day I got to California, they took me to rehab and the rehab was like, no, you need to go to the ICU because like my left arm had such a huge, huge abscess on it. But I got to the ER and they're like, we need to take care of this or else you're going to lose your arm. I had a fever. Like it was horrible, you know? So I started to go to, uh, to rehab. I got into recovery out in California. I started doing the things. Where did you I, go out there? Cause I, I got, I went to rehab in LA. Yeah. Honestly, dude, like I don't even remember the name of the place. I have no idea. Mm -hmm. I would really, I have no clue. Do you know what city it was in? Huntington beach. Okay, that's uh where Mike. <laughs> that's where the sober um app people are. Oh really? Yeah, um, you know Mike Fury. Yes. He's out there. That's where they're located oh, wow. at. Yeah, so it's, yeah. that's that. I know he works at it. He's going on my show tomorrow. Um, Very nice. And I know that he works in recovery out there. So for all we know, it, it <laughs> you, you could be have been a former resident and where he right? works at now. I'll have yeah. to find out tomorrow when I talk. So. You're in rehab in LA and yeah. you get sent straight to the ICU because yes. why shouldn't you? You need to be treated and looked at. And, you know, it, it reminds me of um, of that movie, Re Requiem for a Dream. Oh, that's uh, a horrible movie. And, well, if you, if you listen to the opening to this episode, okay. it, it, it is actually a guitar riff version of the score to that music. I love the score to that music so much that I had my buddy, Nick, uh -huh. um, I had him record his own cover version of that on his guitar. And that's my opening to all my episodes is Requiem for a Dream soundtrack. Oh um, and I remember his arm in, in that movie, spoiler alert, it's from 1999, I think we're safe, but he almost loses, <laughs> he, he does lose his arm. What are we talking to? He, he loses yeah. his arm because of how bad the abscess was from shooting heroin and it, you know, that entire trip, it, it's mayhem. It, that, that shows you like that movie shows you how bad it can get, like, and how things can mm -hmm. unravel because things weren't that bad for them. And then all of a sudden they were driving down to Florida and he lost his arm, yeah. you know? And so, and that's the electric shock therapy on the mom and all that. It's a wild movie. It is so, wild movie. So how long did you stay in California before you came back? Like now you're getting treated for this arm before you lose it. I think I was there for about two months. Okay. Something like that. And then I came back uh, to Texas. And, and to be honest, like the whole, that time frame is kind of like really spotty for me. And what I always tell people is like, my memory doesn't really start until like three years ago. Everything else is just like, bits and pieces and puzzle pieces that start to come together every once in a while, but there's no like fluidity to it. But I, I chose to stop shooting up at that point because I was so scared about losing my arm. Um, but I, I like how you danced around that carefully. You chose to stop shooting up, but not chose to stop doing oh, drugs. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. It was like, because I was always looking for another way. Fool There's me once. There has to be another way. So I figured, okay, as long as I'm not shooting up, then, then I'm going to be fine. Um, so I just started, like I was saying, like when I was doing 
meth and I was all methed up. It was like I was 130 pounds. So I come back to Texas and I start drinking really heavily. So my weight shot up to 300 pounds again. Um, and I started to just take a ton of pills, a ton of pills. And the thing is like, I used to get prescriptions, uh, which meant that I had like a prescription price for the medications. But that's whenever like big pharma started to kind of like pull the reins back and you couldn't get like the Xanax or the Narcos or those other things like really easily. And so you, I had to start paying like the price from street, street prices. And that was. What year was this? Gosh, man. 2015, 16? Like 16, 2016 ish. Okay. Something like that. I yeah. remember when those prices went up. I remember those days too because I was going mm-hmm. and getting a script filled illegally and all that because it was a shady doctor. Um, yeah. But I remember when he got shut down when you know for being a pill mill, and yeah. all of a sudden the prices everywhere were shooting up because everyone had to pay out of pocket for all right. these things, you know, and find these new connects. And mm-hmm. I, I'm scared to death to relapse now because no with the fentanyl everywhere and in the pills and everything, I. With the way that I did drugs, I wouldn't survive today's drugs. No kidding. See, yeah, I was just <coughs> thinking about that, too, because I think, like, when I really think about it, I think it was probably back in 2017 to 2018 is when I really started to get into the doing all those pills that I was talking about. And that is when, um, in San Antonio, I had heard about people getting their own pill pressers and stuff like that. And I was like, what do you mean? Like people are cutting stuff with fentanyl and all these other things. And people are just taking a pill and just dying. Like, right. Just like that. Yeah. That I would never scare me so bad. Yeah. And what scared me is that I had a preference when it came to pills. Um, I, not that I was picky, let's be honest. If right. I, I was going to take whatever you were going to give me, Mm-hmm. Um, however, I had a preference for like thirties were my thing. Thirties are my favorite yeah. pills. And the M thirties were my favorite type of pill where the, you know, they had the M on one side and the 30 on the other with the dash. They mm-hmm. were my, they were my personal favorite. Like if you had them, I was going to drive an hour to see you. Um, mm-hmm. let's be real. I was driving an hour to see you anyway. Um, yeah. but nowadays that's the most pressed pill. Because it's the most favorite pill on the street. So now it's the most pressed pill. Mm. So now if you get a real Roxy, it's really mm. rare because of how much fentanyl is out there. And oh, that no. scares the shit out of me because I know the kind of drug addict I was. Right, exactly. This podcast is also sponsored by BetterHelp. If you are looking for therapy and not able to get something right away locally, you can do that with them within 48 hours. You can find a therapist to get on telehealth with you. I mean, it's I haven't heard anything but great things from people that have already done it that watch my show or listen to my show. If you're looking to get 10% off your first month, you can go to betterhelp.com backslash MJ's PNP MCA. That is betterhelp.com slash MJ's PNP MC. Yeah, that is so scary. You know, um, there's been several times whenever I've overdosed on heroin because it wasn't heroin and it was straight fentanyl. 
Were you living with anybody that was just like co-signing your shit, or were you living alone during all this time? Uh, someone was always co-signing my shit, dude. Like constantly, I had a really bad codependency issue. I did not know how to be by myself, and every single person uh, that I was with was always co-signing my BS. I remember when we spoke about a year ago, we were talking about the whole cycle, the seven-year cycle of mine with the guys. It was like I would be with a dude for like seven years and then like, all right, well, that one, I got tired of that one. So I would start (laughs) my relationship like with another guy. And every single time, like, I mean, they were just as toxic as I was. So was it new drug, new guy? Or was it same drug always and new? Did you have different like alcohol with one guy, you know, heroin with one or meth (laughs) with one? Did you have... Did one kind of always go lined up? New drug, new guy? Yeah, I'm smiling because I just never even thought about that. And you're so right. It was always like that. Like the first dude was like, crack cocaine, seven years. Okay. Oh, let me stop smoking crack, you know? And then it was just like uh, the heroin dude, seven years. And then the next dude was like meth, but the, the, the meth guy that, like I said, that one didn't last very long. Well, I mean, in meth years, that was seven years. (laughs) Probably. It's like dog years. Yeah. When you're on meth, you're awake for a long period of time. So it feels like seven years, I'm sure. Uh, That was, you know, like that was the worst thing to me about being on meth like because i've always been this person like if i can't get sleep my life feels like a living hell and it's like i was just like really living in hell at that point it was so scary it's i get it i mean i'm an insomniac i mean now like i'm medicated insomniac um and it's actually working i'm getting sleep for the first time in my life um but it was to the point where in april um of this past year Mm -hmm. you know completely in sobriety I went um, 11 days straight without sleep. And then I tried it. Then I got, my doctor was like, try Ambien, you know, and I tried it. I I got sleep for five hours Uh and then it never worked again. And because I was awake for another six days after that, Um, we jumped around to like four different things. Finally, we found one that works for me where I don't feel loopy and I, I actually go to sleep naturally um so that that's been helping plus i was unmedicated for um being uh ocd i didn't know that mm-hmm. and that was keeping me up at night and okay. so now that i have something for that too um mm-hmm. that combination and now i get sleep finally but before i was not sleeping even like for years i would go days on end without sleep oh, and i i was like self-medicating with xanax mm-hmm. you know in my 20s Mm-hmm. And, you know, obviously that's that's no good. Um, the only thing that, that's bad about like the Zyprexa is what I take now and is my wife has caught me sleep eating and walking like she's <laughs> caught me like she said she went into the kitchen the other morning, like three o'clock in the morning. And like I was eating her Hershey bar that was like in the fridge. And like she said, I look like a little kid caught red handed. Oh, no. And, and I just slowly put it back and didn't say a word. And I just like walked back in the bed. Oh, my goodness. So I'll take that over anything else, though. I'm finally getting sleep. It is what it is. If sometimes I'm stealing some candy, I'm stealing some candy. Yeah, yeah. 
like because yeah. it was maddening it's it's when you're awake for that long you don't realize that you have rage in you until you're awake for that long and then rage comes like and if it doesn't manifest outwardly, it's manifesting inwardly. For that, sure. That rage, and I can feel it, that kind of, like, when you're awake that long on meth, like, besides being delusional, are you, is that why meth people, like, you get into fighting, and get into fights, and no one's trusting? Is it because of the rage of being awake for that long, you think? I think so. I think that has a lot to do with it, for sure. It, and I mean, and then plus like all the junk and all the toxins that are in that drug, it's just like, you don't even know what's in your body. So I think your body is just kind of like screaming for help. From the so, inside out. so you were saying that, you know, every seven years, new drug, new boyfriend or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but now you're sticking to yourself to kind of like figure out who you are. Right. And then yeah. I'm not mistaken. Yeah, yeah. For the past three years, like, I had made a decision. Well, first, you know, I came into a 12-step program. My sponsor, he was like, you know, for the first year, do not get a boyfriend. Uh, I made a face. Because I said he? Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. So, so, gosh, man, there's like... No, I get it. I get it. I'm I'm not judging. I I have a... I have a woman sponsor myself, so like, oh, I get, you? yeah. Yeah, so whenever I came into, like, the 12-step program, um, I everyone was encouraged, like, males stay with the, the males, women stay with the women. I There's not a lot of women sponsors that are available in the 12-step program that I'm in. Um, not only that, like, the biggest thing was when I got sober, I did not have any type of confidence or faith in women period like all the previous relationships or friendships that i had had in the past were like so toxic and it's, was- it's so funny because i really i wasn't even smiling at you because you said guy i was smiling because i was relating oh and, i see and because i feel this i felt the same way but about yeah. men yeah where all my relationships were friendships that were like all like oh, was that because of drugs or were we friends because of we're friends Mm-hmm. And it's just good, just friend. So like, I had a, a a big problem. Like, I even had to have women therapists mm-hmm. because I had so much. I the only time I saw a male doctor was my psychiatrist, and oh, guess okay. what? It was the only doctor I lied to in rehab. <laughs> oh no! Because yeah. I didn't feel like I could be honest with them. Right, right. And it, I didn't trust them. And now mm-hmm. I have him. Now I'm. I have a psychiatrist that's a man, mm-hmm. and it's. It, I'm. Early sobriety, JD, did not want to hear what you had to say if you were another guy. For sure. I didn't trust you. All men had screwed me over all the time. Because mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't in relationships, you know, throughout my addiction. I was in one long-term yeah. serious relationship and ended in her death. Oh, no. So, like, it was suicide. It wasn't, like, she was, she was sick. She was bipolar, schizophrenic, um, and an alcoholic. So she was, she was sick. Thank you. It's been seven years, but I spiraled. Mm -hmm. And so the only, like, I, I, I just, I had trouble opening up to another guy and I I had a guy sponsor at first too, for the first like few months, but that was so hard for me. Like I felt like I never lied to him, but I also admitted information if that makes sense. 
Yeah, it absolutely makes a lot of sense. I get it. It's like, I, I was like, I'll tell you what I know you want to hear, but I'm not mm-hmm. going to tell you everything that's going on in my head yet. Yeah, for sure. We are such good manipulators. It's like, it, it, I don't know, for me, like in my addiction, one of the things that I, I use, like my spiritual gifts to like read people, um, to be able to know exactly what it is that somebody wanted to hear. So I can manipulate you in, in such a way. And I knew that when I got sober, I was like, okay, like the drugs and the alcohol stopped working. I can't get high no more. Like my life is a living hell. I've lost everything. I'm homeless. My family hates me and I have no friends and I'm in Austin, Texas. I don't even live in this city. What the heck am I going to do? Like if I'm going to get a sponsor, I'm going to get somebody that I can trust, somebody that I can open up to. And I don't give a shit what anybody else thinks about me having a male sponsor because my life is on the line. And if this is going to work for me, like I need to be able to trust somebody. So I said, F it, I'm going to do what I need to do. And I'm glad that I did because everything that that man has taught me has saved my life. Yep. And I couldn't agree more. I mean, I, the, one of the, my um, second to last guest of season two, she, uh, I met her in, in the rooms. Mm-hmm. I met her in LA in the rooms and we would go to meetings together and her sponsor was somebody I looked up to in the program. Like he was an old timer until the day he died of old age and he had like 33 years of sobriety by then his 60s, 70s. Um, And so I saw how much he did for her and that made me more willing to be like, no, we can break these rules. Like, yeah. it, like all some rules were meant to be broken. This is old way. This is old AA way of thinking. And I don't want to subscribe to that way of thinking. I want to be more open-minded thinking. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah, I wasn't given the look to judge. I was given the look to relate. Like, okay. oh, I, <laughs> I get it. You know, that kind of thing. Because, and I'm sure you probably end it's not like it's a romantic thing. Like even mine's engaged. You know what I mean? Like it's not a romantic thing whatsoever. It's just somebody I look up to in the program and that I feel comfortable and confident going to for anything. Right. Right. Because you have to be able to trust the person that you are. So are you, you're still like, it's been, you're still in the program. I'm still in the program. Yes, I am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now are you active in that as well outside of this? I am. I mean, I, I go to meetings. Um, I go to online meetings. Like I, it's interesting because I have like a online zoom home group and then I have like a home group that I go to in person. Okay. So I go to meetings like half of the time online because of the way my work schedule is and my home group in person, like I'll go to a meeting maybe a couple of times a month because they only have like meetings in the morning and my work schedule is like in the morning time. So I just go to whichever one I can. Now, what what's it like down in Austin? Because you're in Austin, right? I'm in San Antonio now. Oh, you, but you were in Austin. I was, yes. Okay. But is recovery different from city to city? Because I know there are more like Austin is where all the LA people went and it's the biggest like homeless problem. I'm not telling you any new information. Yeah. So is it any, cause I remember going to meetings in LA and there would be at least 10% homeless at the meeting. That mm-hmm. was their way of getting a snack and getting a coffee mm-hmm. and they would sit down and listen mm-hmm. only like a couple of times would they interrupt the meeting. You know, yeah. I remember the one time a dude, it was a late night meeting. Anything goes at late night. You know, anybody uh-huh. would tell you they go to 11 o'clock meeting in LA shit's going to yeah. go ha- 
And right. this dude came swinging out of the bathroom, heard the door shut behind him, and he goes crisscross applesauce in front of the podium. And he raises his hand to say, like, can someone help me stop smoking meth? I just got to hide in the bathroom. Like, that's when you know you're at, like, a late night meeting is somebody's getting high in the bathroom then admitting to it right away afterwards. Um, yeah. So that was a really liberal city, though, with a lot of homeless problems. So mm-hmm. a lot of homeless in the meetings. Now, do you see a difference between San Antonio and Austin? Just a slight difference. Not much, to be honest, because there's been a lot of people, homeless individuals, being dropped off in bus loads here in San Antonio. So it just depends on what side of the city you go to. There's, like, my home group, we don't get homeless people at our... Okay. But then at, at another place that I go to every once in a while, it's just, like, that's where they hang out because it's like a club there. So the doors are open all day. I mean, like we have a snack bar, we have like tables, chairs, and people can play games and do whatever they want all day long. And so it's open 24-7. And then I know this from L.A. I'm not like being disparaging against the homeless because we welcome them into the meeting. Right. We wanted you to talk. We wanted you to sit down. We yeah. know that one of these days the message is going to hit. We're not mm-hmm. here to like judge any lifestyles. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm definitely not trying to judge. I mean, dude, I was homeless before, too. Um, I know what it's like to, like, not have a place to stay, like, just trying to have a roof over your head, maybe get something warm to drink or, like, a snack or something like that, you know? Um, so it's just a, it's it's a big paradigm shift whenever you are able to look at it from, like, an experience from the past and see where you came from and see where you're at now. I mean, it gives me... I have a lot more empathy for people that are homeless than some people that I know because they've never lived it themselves. So that's awesome. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're doing so much for your sobriety still today mm-hmm. and that your show is doing what it's doing. Is that now, is that only on YouTube and plug your show some more before we wrap up? Cause I want to make sure people know how to find you. Yeah. So, you know, I had started to record like audio versions on Spotify, but I haven't, I have maybe just like three shows on Spotify, but for the most part, like my energy is focused on my YouTube channel. Um, So I have uh, shows that are uploaded every Monday and Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Central Standard Time. And so I just help people to integrate sobriety, spirituality, personal development. I talk about prayer and meditation and mindfulness, consciousness, awareness. And just recently, though, one of the other things I wanted to bring up is One of the reasons why I ran into the arms of addiction at the age of 14 is because I was always so energetically sensitive um, and I had a lot of spiritual gifts, but I didn't know what that meant. And I didn't start putting the puzzle pieces together until about a year ago. I didn't realize that I was an empath, that I'm a telepath, that I'm an intuitive, that I can read people's minds, um, that I can channel and I can do all of these things. Um, But now I'm starting to teach about telepaths and empaths and just spiritual gifts. And because one of the things that I've really noticed is that a lot of people that are in recovery are, most of them are very energetically sensitive. So that's one of the reasons why a lot of people go to addiction because they don't know how to manage the relationships that they're in or the people around them or the energy that is just like happening around them in everyday life. So I just like to, give people examples of what it's like 
when you're reading someone's mind or what it feels like if you're an empath and you walk into a room or if you walk into a house and you can pre you can feel the presence of someone that's passed because I'm also a medium. So it's like all of these things that I'm starting to discover as I've gotten sober, I like to share it on my channel because a lot of people that are in recovery have the same gifts. They just don't know it yet. So where where are you first discovering? <clears throat> I'm not trying to poke holes yeah, um, whatsoever. I totally believe in all the energy forces because I believe in that more than I believe there's a God in the sky. Um, <laughs> so I believe in energy for sure. Um, so I'm curious, what was it that first made you realize that you could even, because I read a whole book on reading people in okay. psych back in the days of psychi psychology. I was mm -hmm. like, I need to know how to read people. I need to know how to do it when I'm selling them something. So I was selling, I, I was a salesman for a oh, long really? time and face to face at Best Buy. I worked a decade at Best Buy as a salesman. Oh, well, even a sales manager for a while. Uh -huh. um, so I got really good at reading people to know, I know what I need to say to you for you to buy a TV from me and everything else from me, Yeah, you know? And it's everything from body language. So what is it for you? For me, it was Criminal Minds. That move, that show blew me away early on. I was like, I need to learn how to read people. <laughs> so what is it that got you wanting to be able to read people or even really harness that energy? Yeah, so for me, it's not like I had a conscious thought that said, you know what, I'm totally like, I really want to learn how to mind read or I really want to learn how to read people. It wasn't like that. It was something that happened just naturally when I was a kid. Um, so whenever I was a child, my parents were very strict, specifically my father. Um, he had a very stressful job. You know, he worked full time. My mom st stayed home and took care of me and my brothers and everything like that. A lot of times when he would come home, he would be very angry, frustrated. I would get spanked. You know, we would get yelled at and stuff like that. So I got to the point where. Looking back, I realize now that I needed to learn to read his mannerisms. I could just tell like what type of mood he was in by the way that he was walking, the tone in his voice or the inflections that he used or whatever it was. That's how I learned to read was like through reading my dad, just so that I knew like, okay, that's not a good time to talk. It's, it's a good time to stay silent. It's a good time to stay in my room. It's probably best for me to just be quiet in these moments. You so know? that was a necessity at the time then? Yeah, it was absolutely a necessity. Yeah. And how is your relationship with him today? Oh, man, the relationship with my dad is amazing. You know, the thing is, like, I realize now, like, the way that I perceived my dad um, was completely wrong. My dad loved me so much was trying to protect me from these drugs and like all these horrible things that I was doing but I just didn't understand I have always had this like rebel type of thing going on and if somebody told me not to do something like that's exactly what I wanted to do you know like my dad was doing his best to protect me from these horrible things that were happening in the outside world but the thing is like in reality I've always been that type of person that needed to go through these trials and these problems and suffer because that's the only way that I was going to learn, you know? Um, 
so I love my dad. Like he and I are the closest that we have ever been. So I love him dearly. That's awesome to hear. It's, you know, mm-hmm. that you can have a lot of people, you know, go through addiction and just try to blame everything on everybody else and not take yes. responsibility. And then you finally get clean. You're like, how's your relationship? Like, oh, fuck him still. And it's like, <laughs> no, you want to get that relationship and learn why yeah. you had to do all these things. And yeah. I think you're somebody who, like, needs the answers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point that you brought up because before I got sober, I blamed everyone and everything for all of my problems. It was your fault. I'm not going to take responsibility and F you, you know? Uh, but I didn't realize that only one thing needed to change and that was me and only one person or only one person needed to change. That was me and only one thing needed to change. And that was absolutely everything, everything. And so when I remember looking at that, like at the beginning of my sobriety, I was like, damn, like how the heck am I going to do this? You know? So it was like one second at a time, one minute at a time, one day at a time, and then a one month at a time. And now it's like three years and it feels like a blink of an eye. So it's just, uh, it's crazy. Like the amount of things, like how our perspective can change and how everything can shift and how all of the feelings that I had, like towards my family, like I, I felt like I hated my family and I had so many resentments. You know, one of the things my sponsor taught me is like having a resentment is like lighting yourself on fire and hoping that the other person burns. And so like my life was always like that. I was always so angry and so fearful and so anxious. From the time that I was a kid, I was full of all this fear and anxiety. And um, what I realized is like the way that I perceived the world was not what was actually happening in reality. It was just part of what was happening in my mind and my thoughts prevented me from seeing the truth. But now that I don't have any mind altering substances in my body, and I'm learning to reprogram my subconscious mind. And I'm learning to see things from a different perspective. And I'm learning not to take things personally. And I know what projection is. And I realize that so many people are living in resentment that most of the time, anytime they respond to me in a situation, they're just stuck in this cycle of living the past over and over and projecting their experiences towards me. And it has nothing to do with me in that situation. That's very well put. I appreciate it. And I appreciate you sitting down with me again. Are you, um, your social is at Sobriety Playbook? Yes, I can be found on all social media platforms at the Sobriety Playbook. So TikTok, Instagram, uh, YouTube. And if anyone's ever looking for any type of spiritual guidance or sobriety or personal development, um, I can also be found on Wizio. Yeah. I never heard of that, but I'll take your word for it. (laughs) (laughs) And you have like a link, so I'll put all the links in the bio. So if people are looking for it, it's easy to find. The Sobriety Playbook is a really cool name. I'm glad you got to it Mm because somebody was bound to take it. The name (laughs) rings up the bell off the tongue, and it's not too many syllables. Sometimes people have these long names. You're like, oh, it's too many syllables. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So the Sobriety Playbook is nice and easy and easy to say. I appreciate that. So thank you again for taking the time to sit down with me and give me an update on how you've been this last year. I really appreciate it. Yes, absolutely. It was so good to reconnect with you. I appreciate your time. Of course. Have a great night. I'll see you. All right. We'll see you. Take care. Bye-bye.